Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, I'm Manoush. And I'm Stephen. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This week we discuss Theresa May's legacy. We answer your questions on social care. And you ask us, is it a good idea for the Labour Party to take the name of New Labour in vain? So Anoush, it is the last week of Theresa May's premiership. And so I thought it was a good opportunity, seeing as I will not be here next week, I'll be in sunny Penzance in hopefully Sunny Penzance, to talk about her legacy. What do you think Theresa May's legacy will be? So I was thinking about this this morning. Now that we're looking at Boris Johnson, who is about to become Prime Minister, and the increasing likelihood of a no-deal Brexit, I wonder if history will be kinder to Theresa May than we assumed maybe even a few weeks ago. Because if we do have a no-deal Brexit, and it's as disastrous as most of the sort of trusted institutions suggest it's going to be, then we will probably look back perhaps with regret and rose-tinted spectacles to Theresa May's deal, or MPs may end up regretting not voting it through, if no deal is, is, is the disaster that it's supposed to be. And perhaps time will show that the only deal that Theresa May could possibly negotiate was the one that MPs rejected and led, led to chaos. I don't know if that's necessarily, you know, that that's maybe being a bit too fair to her because she was operating within her own red lines, which she didn't need to draw. And that was her big her big mistake. But in terms of her being a complete wreck of a prime minister who divided parliament and declared a war of attrition on MPs, I think that narrative might fall away. Yeah, I think if we do have no deal on the 31st of October, I think May will. I think we probably both agree that she would deserve a large chunk of the blame. Yeah, of course. I guess the yeah, open yeah. question is whether or not we think... Because the odd thing is, is I think if there's a path to May's kind of rehabilitation as a historical figure, I think it would probably be if we do not have no deal, we instead have a prolonged extension and she is merely the second in a line of four, five, six mm. prime ministers, maybe all conservatives, maybe of different hues, to be unable to actually ever formally leave, whether that is leaving through extensions or through transitions. And then, you know, in terms of like the periods of, say, like huge political upheaval uh, instability in Italy, when they've had multiple prime ministers over a very short time, the second one of those, if you look at contemporary newspaper accounts, people are like, oh, you know, they were weak, they were indecisive. When you've gone on a run of five, then there's a levelling out process. I think, however, if, if we have a no deal, I think history will record her so much as the person whose hands were on the wheel, who inherited a situation where, you know, it was really an eccentric minority of Remain voters who wanted Brexit. 
I was about to say who wanted Brexit not to happen. I realize that's the wrong, wrong way of phrasing it. It was an eccentric minority of Remainers who A, wanted Brexit not to happen and B, thought that, that desire should be acted upon. Yeah. This, yeah. this idea that you would have three years after the referendum result, a situation in which the Liberal Democrats are, you know, on 15% at worst on a platform of we'd stop it and have a referendum and Labour are on 20% of the polls at worst on a platform of we might not be opposed to it, but we'll definitely give you a chance not to do it. And a combined Remain score, you know, once you add in the Greens of parties and, of course, the SP of parties going, Plaid Cymru, going, you know, actually we wouldn't like like this, which is which is at near or in some cases exceeding the 48% that Remainers got mm. uh, in 2016, was wholly evitable, I think, right? She absolutely did not need to... Yeah, Brexit didn't need to become a more divisive political project during the negotiation of exit mm, yeah. uh, than it was when Article 50 was triggered. And the sole reason why it did was were a series of decisions made by her. I think that will be... I think A, a I think that's correct, and B, I think that is, is where, what the historical judgment will be if we have a no deal. I think, I think if there's an extension, it gets quite different. I guess the weird thing, yeah, as, as the kind of person who sort of does more of our sort of, sort of social policy and, and the impacts of austerity for us, is that the slight oddness is, essentially by coincidence, she actually has quite a few things you know if someone was bluffing the Theresa May premiership in 20 years having gone on Wikipedia you can see how they might go oh you know really good liberalizing reforms on sentencing yeah the first majority conservative to properly not just obviously Margaret Thatcher the first leader in the democratic world to really talk about climate change but in terms of concrete action on it Theresa May has a record for a centre-right prime minister that is essentially almost unequaled the truth, of course, is that the action on climate change and on uh, biodiversity, on environmentalism, is solely because in order to shore herself up, she brought back her hated rival in a non-job. And then he's been quite dynamic and got things. And the reason why there is a pretty decent set of reforms to criminal justice is because David Gork, who she regarded as a loyalist, ended up in that job after the 2017 election. And she's too weak to sack him, despite the fact that Downing Street doesn't like any of that agenda. But this hypothetical person looking at Wikipedia in 20 years is not going to know any of those things. They will just, I think, go like, oh, not a bad, not a bad record. No, and, and you know, if you were defending Theresa May's record, you could say, well, she was the one who appointed those two ministers who pushed through those agendas, even though she had different motivations for, for putting them in the jobs that she did. So I think that's very, very generous towards Theresa May. And if you look at her aims or her, her stated aims, just as she was taking office the just about managing she hasn't achieved anything that she wanted to in that in that vein i mean the ravages of austerity are only getting worse even though we've had this end of austerity narrative because of the way that it, austerity was continued throughout her premiership it's it's sort of wreaking its its worst havoc on the state now than it was before even though there's been this push to try and row back on it you know in terms of homelessness for example in terms of in work poverty the benefit system being in such chaos all of that is is continuing apace and there's not been any concerted effort to try and stop it regional imbalance economic imbalance she tossed a uh, an insulting amount of money towards the regions for, you know, reinvigorating towns just as a bribe to, to Labour MPs to vote through her deal. There's been there's been no genuine effort to try and fix some of the 
socio-economic problems that we have in this country. And that was her stated aim when she took office, and that was something that she's failed at. I mean, there are many fascinating things about this period of government, but I think one of them is, yeah, I can't remember who it was. One of our podcast listeners once said that they thought the flaw with the Labour Party is uh, its tendency to declarative socialism, you know, kind of like we will do X, and you're just like, you want to tell us what policy levers you want to do to do? And Theresa May really was that to the nth degree, a kind of declarative conservatism. Oh, we'll tackle burning injustices, right? This kind of attempt to rehabilitate herself by going, I'm going to have a net zero target by 2050. And it's just like, yeah, great target, yeah, yeah, well, fine. But that is a not small project, right? Merely declaring it as a kind of, we'll do this by 2050, right? You actually do have to have a plan. There was never any... Like, it's not even that they were misconceived ideas, right? There was, you know, what is the kind of burning injustices? Oh, grammar schools. Like, what's the, you know, yeah, yeah. what were the <laughs> policy levers than she was even hoping to, to pull? I just feel like, basically, even though I, to be honest, do think that actually she, I think is much harder to affect a historical sort of rehabilitation for than is for David Cameron mm. in terms of Brexit and, in, you know, like, and, you know, the kind of, you know, the ensuing consequences for for British governance because I think it's just really hard to looking at the inner life of the Tory party and it's why I do kind of think it's quite striking I feel a lot of the people who are the most shrill about David Cameron's responsibility for Brexit tends to be publications which endorsed David Cameron in 2015 or in some way went oh you know maybe it's just like but actually the structural fact of a conservative majority was going to produce a an in-out referendum. Mm. But I do not think the structural fact of Brexit had to produce the, the very vociferous politics that we have seen after the fact. Yeah. And that was solely because she thought that you could use that referendum fissure to remake politics in a way that favoured the Conservative Party. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we don't know what David Cameron would have done if he'd carried on being Prime Minister, because he never would have if, if the referendum had been lost. Yeah, and it's just an act of lunacy to allow, when you have a close referendum, one on a, you know, shall we say, impressionistic set of promises, it's an act of lunacy to A, do it in that manner, because it allows the opposition party to do what Okay, it might not be lucrative for them at the moment. It, it may start working for them again, but it was certainly lucrative for them for some time. To allow the opposition to move into a position of, we will do that, but nicer. And not only to allow it, but also to actively block any attempt to prevent that happening, right? The most constructive pro-Brexit thing that the, that the Labour Party did to vote for Article 50, yeah, I don't resolve from any of the things I wrote at the time about why I thought it was undesirable from a kind of nationwide perspective at that point. But the most constructive thing they did from a it happening perspective was immediately greeted by, we need to have an election about how Brexit is being blocked, which was always going to result in a deepening of, and yeah, of course, the dementia tax and other stuff helped. But like, the emergence of Remain Leave as enduring political divides, I just think she did have a key role in. What I think is particularly unforgivable about No Deal is better than a bad deal is the one thing we can now say, I think, with close to 100% certainty, is she clearly did not believe that to be true. Because, and I know I'm a bit of a stuck record on this, because Parliament took so long to get its act together in March, at the point that Parliament had finally passed something to force a delay, a sufficiently determined Prime Minister could definitely have done it, right? Because all of the things that were in Cooper 1 that actually tied the government's hands, they had to get rid of in order to get MPs to vote for it. There were loads and loads of ways and she could have got, she could have met the needs of that extension request in a way that would have ensured that it was not granted. She clearly does believe that no deal is not better than a bad deal. 
And it's just like a deeply dangerous thing to say if you don't believe it to be true. And again, I know I'm a stuck record on this, but I do think one of the really dangerous myths in politics is that most politicians uh, lie freely. Most of them don't. Most of them believe what they're saying, and most of them do not say things that are demonstrably false. They have sins of omission, but most politicians do. Whereas Theresa May, I think, is in a way that David Cameron wasn't, Jeremy Corbyn isn't, Nick Clegg wasn't, Ed Miliband wasn't. Yeah, actually, in a way that very few politicians is comfortable saying things like... No one, no one tried to undo the result of the Welsh Assembly referendum. Yeah, he couldn't be deported because of a cat. The yeah, like he's just very comfortable with saying things that she visibly cannot possibly believe. And on that cheery note. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So last week, we asked you. We talked about uh, social care. And one of the things that uh, we were talking about that I was intrigued by was why is it that the number of adults needing social care is going up at a faster rate than the population is aging? And lots of people emailed both of us about it. So Anish, why don't you uh, talk through some of the... Yeah, so this was a question that I couldn't answer on the podcast last week. But thankfully, I had a very helpful Disability UK researcher who contacted me and gave me some explanations as to why the number of working age adults who need social care, so not the elderly, working age adults who need social care is going up disproportionately. And the first thing to remember is that nearly half of adult social care spending goes on this group. So, you know, it's... (laughs) When you read articles about it or you watch documentaries about it and it's accompanied with stock footage of an old people's home, that's not really that representative of what adult social care actually is. So that's that's one thing to, to remember. But one of the reasons is that most of the long-term social care spending on working age people goes on people with learning disabilities and their life expectancy is going up in line with the life expectancy of people without learning difficulties. So that means that they're outliving their parents or they're growing old enough to be beyond the age that their parents can continue to care for them. And so they need more state help. So that's one of the main reasons. Another reason is that medical advances mean that if you get an injury or an illness or you have a genetic condition, you're more likely not to die because of the medical help that you receive. But that means that you might need long-term care and that long-term care comes from the social care budgets. That's the reason why that's going up and it will continue to go up, and that's sort of guaranteed by by policymakers and experts in this field. So while we talk about an ageing population putting pressure on councils, there's also this other side of the story that is also putting pressure on the social care budget, which means that there really needs to be an overhaul in how it's funded, which we spoke about last week. Yeah, I thought the other sort of interesting thing, because one of the questions we got was, well, you talked about you know, the problem of Jeremy Hunt going, oh, we'll just make it easier for people to live with one another. Mm. And I think the thing that is not sufficiently understood is the reason why just look after your own old people or just meet your own social care needs at home is not 
a useful response is because literally everyone is getting older. Yeah. Which, you know, I mean, like, personally, there is a 23-year gap between myself and my mother and a 21-year gap between my grandmother and my mother. There are very few periods when it is... So one, actually, from a from a income of the caregiving person perspective, it's not guaranteed that you can meet those needs internally. But ultimately, at the point that my grandmother might be old enough to need acute social care needs, I could be 50, yeah. my mother could be 70, she could be 90. I'm not convinced that any of those age brackets, you know, not that I also could have a teenager, right? You know, like, it's, it's one of those things where people, I think, don't appreciate when they talk about, oh, why don't we just do it in the olden days? Yeah, like where people used to just care for their elderly parents. People weren't as old for, weren't old for as longer. Yeah, exactly. Like all of those, like, you know, when you watch, like, say, like, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, a great sort of 70s BBC drama, and then look at the age of all of those old people, <laughs> they're actually not that old. Yeah. They just died quicker. And that is, like, the big, you know, one of the big policy challenges I think no one really engages with is this quite prolonged period where actually simply going, oh, we just increased the retirement age. Well, actually, if you're 68 and you've had two heart attacks, like, just working as much as you did when you were 28 is possibly not an option for you either. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think... That you're right. That is the big policy challenge, and and meeting that policy challenge with some kind of tax incentive to carry on living with your elderly relatives is not the thing to solve it. It's quite untory as well, isn't it? It's like interfering in people's personal lives. Yeah, and I think what well, does speak to one of the interesting dilemmas, which we should talk about when I get back from Penzance, which is Brexit means that you know the the effect of Theresa May, the decisions taken by Theresa May, I think means that Brexit is going to change the base of support for political parties, at least temporarily, and. I don't think either party, beyond on the Labour side saying community a lot, <laughs> uh, has really engaged with what that means for their policy programme going forward. Yeah, I do remember someone who works in, you know, in the civil service saying, if you hear the word community, that should that should throw up a red flag because it means someone's just not really thought about the thing they're announcing properly because it, it's a word that can yeah. mean nothing. Yeah, it's just like, oh, you know, so a bunch of people who quite like economic liberalism are not going to vote for the Conservative Party. That does have implications for their programme. A bunch of people who bluntly do not like the Brexit position you would end up if you wanted to do any of the other stuff Labour wants to do mm. might not work. So that either has implications for majority or it has implications for the programme. But in both cases, it's just like, oh, maybe if we just use the word community or entrepreneurship or tax incentives, then all of these coalition-related problems will just melt into nothing. <laughs> And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. And this question is actually a a slightly older one, which we didn't get around to asking at the time, from Jonathan James back in June. What is the harm in talking trash about New Labour? Or more specifically, in tarring Thatcherism and Blairism with the same neoliberal brush? It's a really good question. Thanks for sending it in. I think that this is a really key question to to the... sort of position that the Labour Party has found itself in now and I think it is really damaging to talk trash about um, Labour's history and government whether that's New Labour or otherwise because most voters when they hear Ed Miliband was the first person to start doing it wasn't he after the New Labour years when they hear a Labour leader trashing their own party's record in government they don't know about you know the difference between New Labour and you know the soft left and blue Labour and 
all of the different factions. They don't care about that. All they hear is a Labour leader saying we were rubbish in government. I just think it's so counterproductive to say that and believe that that's a message that voters are going to hear and think that, that your party is trustworthy in government. That's why I really blame Ed, Ed Miliband for Labour's divisions because he was the first person to to start using a break from New Labour and quite an aggressive and hostile attitude towards New Labour to try and get support in the party, to try and get his own base. And it didn't go well for him. Hmm, I don't know. So I think it's actually a rare schism. In an, I, kind of say, I mean, wasn't that the point of New Labour was a kind of implicit attack on the past? You know, like you had fears about us in the past, but we are different. And I kind of think that people's verdict on the last on Labour's last time in office was the 2010 election and you know ultimately I kind of take the view that political parties can defend the past they can win future elections but it's quite hard to do both Mm -hmm. the significant tactical difference of course is that the trade-off if you are Tony Blair in 1994 or indeed Jeremy Corbyn in 2015 of going that was awful I think makes a lot more sense because you weren't involved Mm-hmm. The point that Tony Blair became Labour leader, they'd been in, in, in opposition for 14 years. So it's a, it's, there's an advantage to going, look, we're new. But the reason why I think it was a bad idea under Ed is it's a, like, we did things badly. So please make sure to vote for a top team, all of whom had been intimately involved. Right, you know, of the four people who would have held the major offices of state under Ed Miliband. Ed Miliband had, you know, cut his teeth in the Treasury, been a minister basically since 2005 when he got elected. Ed Balls intimately involved in the Treasury, you know, been a minister essentially since being elected in 2005. Yvette Cooper, brown eye from the beginning, you know, been around, in and around ministerial office almost constantly from the beginning of her time as an MP. Douglas Alexander. Yeah, all these Ditto, people. Like, Andy Burnham. Yeah, like, yeah. it's just like, you, you cannot be the, the candidates of breach when you have the biography of continuity. Yeah. So I kind of think there are, there are sort of two questions. There's the, the theological question, about whether or not it is useful from the perspective of a governing project to go the era of Labour government from 97 to 2010 and the era of Conservative government from 79 to 29 or perhaps depending on how you feel about the second Wilson government maybe from 74 or maybe from 1970 or whenever you want to to cast the beginning of the kind of neoliberal era in British politics. There are kind of separate questions about whether or not that is a useful policy basis to have but i kind of think if you can pull it off casting yourself as the vote against the vote for change is always a positive thing Mm -hmm. the slight contradiction is that weirdly despite the fact that it's in jeremy corbyn's interest and he can for reasons of biography do the well i'm not like that we saw this today in pmqs Mm -hmm. it was a labor government which did x y and z in the in the in the noughties on climate change and i kind of think it's one of those things where you either need to kind of rip off the band-aid and go that was awful we're change yeah but the second you go that was awful we're change you can't say we were the first person to do this we were the first person yeah. to do that and he's been doing that a lot in pm yeah recently. and i think this is the thing which is this odd and in some ways i think it speaks to the interesting contradiction sort of right at the heart of their strategic project which is to what extent are they a new lowercase n mm. a new labor phenomena and to what extent is this like just the Labour Party, but with a slightly different faction in charge. Yeah, and you basically kind of see that in the kind of, like, isn't the terrible thing about austerity, then we don't have enough border guards. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I kind of think that these two things were the same, but I am going to talk up these 
achievements, right? And actually, you know, today, for example, like the I, so with that weird row about social mobility, where it felt a lot of people were semi-reacting to how one or two outriders had covered it, mm. because Corbyn's speech was actually quite surprisingly, I thought quite sympathetic to and pro lots of the stuff that the last Labour government actually did, while being quite critical of the frame of social mobility. I mean, a position that has been held by Vince Cable, among other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The weird thing was, is the second, and and it does speak to some of the weird ways, then that, that it does feel like Labour has slightly drifted back into its Ed Miliband era rut. This kind of thing where it was like, at the same time, wanting to be like, we're the people of breach, we have a new approach, but look, we did say lots of nice things about it and we'll build on X. It's just like, I can kind of see how either of these approaches would, would work. I'm less convinced that, you know, a little bit of breach on Monday, yeah, you know, a little bit of continuity on the Wednesday and by the Saturday, whatever it is, and they did. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it always does jar when Corbyn boasts about the lab- the last Labour government's achievements at PMQs. And, and, you know, I think Theresa May's even responded with, I never knew the, you know, I never knew that you were so, so sort of sympathetic towards Tony Blair. Although, I, you know, I don't know how many ordinary people really pick up on that. But it does sound like a contradiction. And also an important thing to, to remember now is that Labour is really preparing for, for an election and trying to put policies together for a next manifesto. And they are, you know, bumping up against some of the same obstacles that the new Labour government did when it was trying to do radical things. And so some of its policy makers will sound like, you know, like they're more prepared to compromise and more like triangulators in inverted commas than maybe, you know, the sh- their shadow front bench ministers do because they're, they're realising, oh, actually, we can't abolish private schools. And, you know, when new Labour were in power, they did try and and do things about private school tax status and realise that it was really politically difficult as well as as well as policy-wise. And so I think maybe there's a little bit more sympathy in terms of sort of what's technically possible as well. Yeah. There's a very ambitious pledge being made today by John McDonnell to mm. eliminate in-work poverty over the for it, at the end of a, a new Labour government, uh, sorry, of a, again, lowercase n's first term in office, which... The the interesting argument, whenever you get kind of three or four sort of welfare policy ones together, they go like, did Tony Blair appreciate how big of an undertaking the child poverty target was when they made it in 1999? Now, I'm strongly in favour of, particularly something like that, you know, targets that are sufficiently ambitious because they, provided your Downing Street is well run, it drives forward good project management throughout the whole of the administration. Mm. Of course, that can often be quite a big if, provided your Downing Street is well run. But again, it does kind of have this weird thing where like, and I guess that's why I'm not convinced it's that helpful from a theological perspective, because ultimately you're talking about a political movement which last won anything in an era before iPlayer Mm. and governed in an era where, you know, people still had to choose between using the internet and being able to receive a phone call. (laughs) Uh, and, And in some cases, the focusing on the policy failures or policy successes of that time is not actually that useful yeah you've been listening to the new states and podcast with me Stephen bush and my colleague anusha kellyan it's recorded by emily bootle and produced by nick hilton our music is devil by the devil licensed under creative commons